There may be no more famous story from the Bible, nor one that we learn at a younger age, than the story of Jonah and the whale. Raise your hand if you have never heard of the story of Jonah and the whale. Welcome to planet Earth. <laughs> this is one of the most beloved narratives in all of the scriptures. It is something we teach our children from a very, very young age, but perhaps never really understanding for ourselves the full import of the story that we read. And even if you believe you know your, this story, I want to invite you to hang on to your scuba gear because we're going to take a deeper dive into this text than maybe you have ever gone before. And when you come out again, when you emerge again, you're going to be amazed at how much this familiar tale has to teach us, especially at this very moment in American life, especially at this moment in our own lives. The story begins with this verse, the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And I want to stop right there because those first five words tell us something very important. They tell us that God is active. They tell us that, that God is a being who doesn't just sit off in some celestial paradise, but who comes to where real people live. And that is important to remember because sometimes we slip into this thinking that God is really far away out there someplace, largely unconcerned with what's going on right here. And the more chaotic it gets here, the more difficult it gets here, the more we're inclined to wonder if God even cares about what is happening here. Or maybe we think that God is really kind of like a passive resource. He's a little like electricity, something that we just plug into and plug out of when we feel a particular need of that resource and can largely ignore him when we don't feel like paying attention to him. But this text and many others in the Bible remind us that we cannot count on this God to stay in his place. We cannot depend upon God to simply work within our prescribed channels. God, the story tells us, is liable to break into our life at any time. He is liable to find us wherever we go. He's liable to say things to us that we may not want to even hear. The last five verse, words of that verse are also very important ones. Because we're being told here about a particular person into whose life God broke in that kind of particular way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now that little fact is something of a giveaway. That little moniker is a giveaway to those of us who have read the Bible over the years because earlier on in the scriptures, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we actually have met a man by that very name. And that tells us a whole lot more about who this individual is. We know from 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah lived in the northern portion of Palestine, the kingdom of Israel it was called at that particular time that he was a prophet in Israel, and a prophet is a person whose job it is to discern God's will. 
to pay attention to what God is saying for the purpose of going to the people that God loves and communicating to them his heart, his message, in order to turn them, in order to transform them in some significant way that moves them back towards God and towards his purposes. That's the ministry of prophets. To listen for God and then speak for God to his people, to the people that God loves, in order to draw them closer to him and to the purposes he has. So knowing that fact, knowing that Jonah is a prophet, we can easily predict what's going to happen next in the story. Jonah is going to hear from God, and then he's going to, to go to the Jewish people, and he's going to preach God's word to them so they will turn back to him, and then all will be well. That's what we would expect to happen next. In fact, the, the start of this text is very familiar. The word of the Lord God came to. It happens again and again throughout the prophetic literature, and it's always this call for the prophet to go to the people of Israel. Not this time, except in this case. And this is where it gets really interesting, I think. Unusual and interesting. Because in an extraordinary departure from the usual pattern, in a move that actually prefigures the call that Jesus will later give to his disciples to go forth into all of the world, in, in a pattern like that, God calls his servant to go preach his word not to God's chosen people, but to the pagans, but to people that are far from God. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, when I say pagans, and when God says here wickedness, it really helps to understand what we mean. Nineveh, which is located where Mosul, Iraq is today, was the capital city of Assyria. Uh, one of the great powers, the rising powers of the 8th century BC. It was located about 500 miles to the east of where Jonah's home was in northern Israel. And the Assyrians of the 8th century were not a group of people you would likely want to invite to your Thanksgiving table. They were not that well-mannered. Archaeologists have found huge carved tableaus commissioned by the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III, that, that depicted the kinds of things the Assyrians delighted in doing. And what they delighted in doing was atrocities towards their enemies. When they had captured an enemy soldier, for example, Assyrian troops would often cut off both of his legs and one of his arms and leave the other arm behind so they could shake his hand and smile at him in mockery as he bled out. That was a typical practice of the Assyrian soldiers. That was, of course, if they were feeling merciful because they could do a whole lot worse. They routinely forced people they had vanquished to march through their their cities and villages, carrying on pikes the decapitated heads of their very loved ones, forcing them to carry these horrible, horrible 
uh, artifacts. They roasted people alive. They tore out people's tongues. They created skin tapestries of their victims and hung them on walls. Are you getting the picture of what the Bible means when it says that God saw their wickedness coming up before him? What is worse is that by the time that Jonah lived, Assyria had set its sights on taking over Israel. It was already exacting a demanding tribute against the northern kingdom of Israel that was having a devastating impact on the economy and the standard of life there. Prophets before Jonah had predicted that Assyria would actually be used as God's rod of judgment. God was going to use the Assyrian armies to chasten his people and punish them for their own wickedness and their own wanderings. And this, of course, is a prophecy that actually came true in the year 722 B.C., another 50 years after this story of Jonah uh, is set. So for these reasons, average citizens lived in constant fear that maybe this was the day or maybe this was the week or month when the Assyrians would finally come. They'd come sweeping in. They would do to Israel what they'd done to other nations. This is the context of Jonah's story. Okay, this is the context of what God says. This is what God is saying, just to kind of fit it in here. God is saying, I want you to go right into the middle of the terrorist camp. I want you to go right up to the leader of this whole atrocious uh, movement and I want you to tell them how displeased I am with them. I want you to give them you know what on my behalf. Go, says God, to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. It's in my face. And the Bible reports But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. Now, just an FYI, Tarshish isn't just slightly off course from where God was telling Jonah to go. There are times when God tells us to do things, and we don't do exactly what God wants us to do. We don't follow the prescriptions of Scripture exactly, but we we get sort of close You know, we get as close as we know how to get. There are moments like that when our faithfulness works this way. But but not in this case for Jonah. It's like you got a call from God today, and he said, I want you to go to Pittsburgh. On my behalf, there's some people in Pittsburgh I want you to speak to. Go there today to Pittsburgh, and you said, got it. And you climbed into your car, and you drove to Las Vegas. That is the exact image of what's going on there. A 2,500-mile opposite direction journey. Jonah went down to Joppa, a little town on the coast of Israel. I've been there. You can go there. Some of you may have been there. Where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, 2,500 miles away, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Not over land, but now over sea. Why? 
to flee from the Lord. To flee away from the Lord and his calling. God was very, very clear about what he wanted done. But Jonah said in effect, oh no God, I'll do a lot for you, but not that. Not that. Part of the reason why the story of Jonah is so important, uh, why it is so relevant for each of us and for our times, is because there is something of Jonah in most of us. Like Jonah, we are spiritual people. You wouldn't be listening to me today if that wasn't part of your makeup. We've demonstrated more religious commitment than the average person. Here in America today, decreasing numbers of people are sitting in churches like you're sitting in right now or listening to the sound of my voice through our media outreach. You're already on the path with God in an important way. And for a lot of us, that faithfulness is something of a stretch for us in some ways, given all the pressures of life in modern times. We go to church even if it doesn't always thrill us. We strive to be good people even if it takes some work to do that. We'll try to understand God's purposes even if those purposes do confuse us at times. But there is a limit to this if we're truly honest. There is a limit. There's a point past which each of us, in our own way, and it's different for different ones of us, there's this point out there someplace in different parts of our life where we won't go. Even if God is explicit, we won't go. There's some things which even if God opened up the roof right this very moment and shouted down to you, I want you to do this particular thing, we would frankly respond, no God, not that. Not that. Part of the problem is that there are so many times when we just can't see any good reason for doing the things that God wants us to do. God calls us very clearly in his scriptures to be radically loving, to be truly generous, to be repeatedly forgiving, to be daringly courageous. And we don't or we won't do these things, at least not always, or in the ways that he has in mind. Why is that? Because the obvious downside of doing what he asks seems so huge that that, that there, there just could not be, we assume, an even larger upside to his calling. It just couldn't be. The classic example of this, of course, predates you and me. It goes all the way back. It goes back to the first human beings, to the story in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In that classic example, God calls human beings to respect a boundary that he has put around a particular tree, but because the fruit of that tree looked very good to the eye and, and pleasing to the taste, Adam and Eve thought about the instruction God had given them and decided, not that. Not that. 
They could not trust that God had actually had their very best interests in mind when he called them to do this tough thing, to respect this boundary. They could not reason in their minds that this was a reasonable thing, and so they said, not that, and they blew him off. They, they ignored him and went their own way. And it's not different with Jonah in this story. Uh, Jonah could see no good reason for going to Nineveh. They will cut me up into pieces, he probably thought. That trip could not possibly end well, God. Jonah was convinced that he knew better than Almighty God. And how often do you and I go get to a place where we just refuse to, to move past a certain point in our discipleship because we figure there can't be a good reason for that. We figure we know better than God. This is especially true when it comes to answering the call that God gives us to relate creatively to unpalatable people. You know the kind of people I'm talking about? I mean people that we find really distasteful. Whose attitudes, whose politics, whose personality, whatever. We just find distasteful. There are people who actually make us kind of wretch at the thought of being in relationship with them. And, and in some cases, as for Jonah in this story... What we're really saying when we think not that is not them. I mean, I could do that in the abstract, God. I can love, forgive, so in the abstract, God, in principle, but not with them. Not with them. I will not do what you are asking me to do toward them. There's good reason to think that it wasn't just because he was afraid of being hurt that Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. And we'll learn more about this in coming weeks as we dive further into the story. Jonah loathed those pagans. He loathed all pagans in actuality, but especially those Assyrian pagans. He wanted nothing to do with those others. And Jonah might actually have feared, and we'll get some evidence of this later on in the story as well, that if he actually did go and preach God's word to these people, they might repent. They might be spared the judgment God brings on sin. And Jonah did not want to see forgiveness extended to those people, not them. Not them. But that is what God wanted. That is what God wanted. As atrocious as the Ninevites were, God wanted to turn them. He wanted to transform them. He wanted to change them from their wicked ways. He wanted to stop them from damaging others and for disfiguring in a further way their own very souls. God's passion to redeem even very unpalatable people, is staggering. It's one of the great messages 
of the entire Bible. It's given again and again and again. I could spend weeks with you just looking at all of the times and places where God reaches out towards unpalatable people, trying to reestablish relationship, a redemptive relationship with them. And this is why, not surprisingly, when Jesus, the Son of God, comes to the earth, when the word of the Lord came to us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, he gave his followers some very explicit and some very difficult instructions. One of those instructions we touched on a couple of weeks ago, Jesus calls us to pursue reconciliation with those with whom we have a gap, even a really grievous gap. He says, I want you to leave behind your sacrifice on the altar if you're in church and haven't dealt with this and go do that. I want you to go to that person with whom the grievance exists. He calls us to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile with people who have taken advantage of us, Matthew 5, verses 39 and 41. He calls us to do good to our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. I could give you so many more examples of this call of God to go like this to these unpalatable people. And much of the time, if we're truthful, I'm pleading guilty here myself, we, we respond kind of like Jonah. I just see no good reason to do what God is asking me to do, so I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to build a redemptive relationship with them. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable to them. I am not going to give another chance to them. I, I am not going to consider the possibility that there is something redeeming about them. I am not going to try to learn something from them. I'm not going to find out what you might do through me or in me if I followed your call and reached out to them. You can have a lot of things from me, God, but not that, not them. And our politics, and our race relations, and our family systems, and our schoolyards, and our religious communities are afflicted today with the Jonah syndrome. And I might expect that hardness of heart from pagans, but it's in God's people too. It's even amongst those of us who love the Lord. God has made it very clear about the direction that he wants us to go. God has made it very clear that he wants us to be salt and light, a different kind of agent in the world in the darkness and the decay of our time. But instead of turning towards Nineveh, many, many people are bound for Tarshish because we know better, because we know that what God calls for won't work. <laughs> it's not smart. It's, it's not practical. So how is that journey going for us? Let me finish this part of the story 
and continue on in the scriptures. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo they had into the sea to lighten the ship. Now, I want you to notice the incredibly important detail we're being given here. Don't just let, don't like rush past this part of it. Jonah has gotten on this boat. Why? Out of a desire to avoid having to have contact with a bunch of non-Jewish pagans. Guess now where he finds himself being transported and at the mercy of. Guess who he is now being carried by and at the mercy of. That's right, a bunch of pagans. A bunch of people who would call out to all these various gods. It's an amazing irony, almost humorous. But Jonah had gone below deck, the scriptures say, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Isn't it interesting, isn't it? The, the, the pagan has a notion here that there is a God who would actually be concerned for more than just Jonah, would be concerned for lots of different kinds of people. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Another interesting point there because casting lots was something that the Jewish people did. Who knew? The pagans did it too as a way of discerning the will of God. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He's sounding pretty reverent there. He's pretty pious, this Jonah, isn't he? This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew, the text says, he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Well, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you make, to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah replied, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead... The men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, not to the pagan God, to the Lord God Almighty. They cried out to him. And they said, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. 
And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. There is just so much in this part of the story alone. Let me just give you two things to ponder as I send you out today. First, please note who demonstrates the greatest spiritual maturity and insight in this story. Who in this narrative shows concern to understand the backstory of somebody else's life? What's your job? Where do you come from? Who are your people? Who does that in this story? Who wants to understand the life experiences, the religious traditions that shape the person before automatically judging and tossing over somebody? Who, who in the story does that? Secondly, or second part of this, who demonstrates the spiritual insight here that there might be a connection between somebody's moral failings and this wacky, crazy chaos going on around us at this time? Who demonstrates a willingness to go and row the second mile, enduring tremendous personal danger in order to save a stranger, an other, them? Who does that in this particular story? Who engages in prayer in this narrative? Who makes a sacrifice to worship the true God? Is it Jonah? No. It's the pagans. It's them. God is trying to shake us up and get our attention with this story. This is like one of the parables of Jesus that just, it's so unexpected, it's, it's so rocks and shocks us that we're being begged to open our minds and our hearts and to consider that God's way may not be our way. It is not always God's people who act most like the people of God. It is not only in us and in our kind, that true virtue is found. For all of their sin, there's often a beauty and a goodness in those people that we could very easily write off as them. And God somehow must see that beauty and the goodness because he goes to such length to redeem them. For all that may be wrong with them, the others in our lives may actually have something to teach us. And so secondly, and finally, can we at least consider the possibility that when God calls us to move toward them, whoever they may be in your life and mine, that God may know what he's doing. As unreasonable as it may seem to us in the moment, even if it makes no immediate sense to us now, 
maybe God knows what he's doing. Can we at least ponder the possibility that this call he gives us to go to them is not only for their redemption, but maybe also for our redemption. We'll just have to see how this story goes on from here. For the time being, just let those two thoughts wrap around us. It's not always us who have the corner on righteousness. God may know what he's doing when he calls us to go to others, and it may be about our redemption as much as about theirs. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. before the new thing began. Let's pray together. Lord, as we sit in the belly of whatever enwraps us right now, remind us, please, that we are surrounded and preserved by a whale of a lot more grace than we even recognize. In these next days, do your good work in us, we pray, so that we can eventually rise to a place where you can even more fully do your good work through us and in us. In the name of Jesus and for the sake of others, we pray. Amen.